0: All right, we're going to jump in today. Matthew 6 is where we're going to be one more time. Matthew chapter 6. If you have a Bible uh, on your phone or in your hands, you can pull that up. We'll have it on the screen as well. We're going to dig into this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples one more time. And as you're getting there, um, I I want to just tell you in a couple weeks, we're going to kick off a brand new series called Every Single Day. And if you've been with us here at New Community for any amount of time, you know that one of the things we talk about frequently, really the kind of the heartbeat of who we are, is that we think God called us, planted this church to be a church that finds Jesus and follows Jesus, that helps people find Jesus and follow Jesus beyond Sundays. And in fact, we would say that that means every single day. And so over the course of the four weeks of the series coming up, we're going to begin to look at some things that we believe that we were convinced should define the church, things like imagination, things like curiosity, things like wonder and courage, and what that means to our lives every single day. So I didn't do the 2020 Vision Series at the beginning of January, but we're going there. Okay, so be ready, and we're going to go with that. Everybody got a Bible? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put Matthew 6 on the screen. I would love to pray this prayer with you one more time before we begin to unpack the last part of that. So let's pray these verses together. This then, just read this with me, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I love that prayer. And I I even love the voice, the sound of the voices reading and saying that prayer together. I know some of you are bothered because it doesn't say trespasses and trespassers. That's all right. We're going to make it. So, um, we have made our way through this prayer, and we began by talking about the fact that it starts with our Father, that it's about relationships. It's, it's an invitation to talk to a good Father. And then we we kind of transitioned and said, you know what? It also says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that's an act of surrender. So if prayer is built from a relationship, it grows in surrender. And then we said a couple weeks ago that when we ask God for the daily bread, we're actually bringing the minutia of our lives, the little things, all the little details to God. And then my wife, again, apparently did an incredible job last week because I got all kinds of texts about how good she was. Um, And she shared with you guys about forgiveness. She preached, amen, right? She says she doesn't preach. She preached. So today we're going to wrap this up, sort of, because of all the weeks that we've been talking about Jesus' prayer, I have to warn you, today is the most complex of the series, I know forgiveness is hard, but the, the the phrasing that you use today becomes really difficult. It raises the most questions, and I I studied all week for this, and I got to tell you, I have more questions than answers today. They're good questions, they're hard questions, but they're questions that ha- have kind of disoriented some things that I think we need to wrestle through. But. Before we get to the questions, I want to tell you a story that you may or may not be familiar with. How many of you were born in, in like before 1980, 80 or before, even in that realm? Okay, so most of you are going to know this story of this place called Chernobyl, right? And in April of 1986, just after midnight outside this little town in Russia called Pripyat, this reactor number four of this, this nuclear power plant called Chernobyl melted down. And in the immediate explosion that happened, two staff were killed, In the emergency response that followed, about 134 firemen and staff were hospitalized with what they called acute radiation syndrome. And of those 134, over the next days and months, 28 of them would die. 14 suspected cancer deaths from the radiation would follow over the next 10 years. Some scientists even today have predicted that with with the way that the fallout happened, that in the coming decades, there could be 4,000 deaths in the Soviet states related to this meltdown that took place, that there could be nine to 16,000 deaths across Europe because of the fallout from this accident. There's a great book called Midnight in Chernobyl that, that tells this story, and HBO just released, released a, a phenomenal series last year about this story. But to understand what happened at Chernobyl, you need to know one thing. The disaster itself began with a safety test. It began with a check of the safety systems. Technicians wanted to check, are our cooling systems working? Because as best as I read it, the way that the nuclear reactor happens is that this nuclear material is heating and it's using steam to get hotter and it's producing this energy that cycles through. But there's a balance because of the cooling water and these rods that they lower into the nuclear material to, to keep it balanced. And stability is the goal. Stability is the goal. But what happened is that as they tested their backup systems, they could not control how hot it was was getting. They could not control what was taking place. If you haven't read about this, in the wake of this disaster, 115,000 people were evacuated from just a 20-mile radius. 500 to 600,000 personnel were called in. They were drafted into service, military and civilian For cleanup, they were called liquidators. Some of them went in to to clean up the material, and actually, uh, uh, on the roof of this plant, they were only allowed to work for ninety seconds at a time. They would ring a bell. They would send them out to clean up, and then they'd ring a bell again to pull them back. Others, others of the liquidators were sent out to execute and extinguish all the livestock, all the animals that lived in that radius, because they could not let them live. Everyone in that environment was exposed to the toxicity. Now, let me shift gears. Last week, I was gone. You know that if you were here. I I was in Chicago for a denomination's uh, national gathering, and as I was getting ready to come home, I ran into uh, someone that I'm going to call the airport lady, okay? After the week, I was getting ready to catch this plane, and and many of you know I'm an introvert, right? Like, that's that's my world. So what you haven't seen is that I'm like off-the-charts introvert when I travel, I Carrie even has to work to get me out of my headphones if she's with me. Like I just, it's, it's my quiet place, my safe place, okay? I know it's a plane, some of you, that's not safe, but here we are. So I'm sitting at the airport, I find my spot tucked back in the corner, I'm sitting there, I'm working away, and, and as I sit down, I hear this, this airport lady starting to, you can just tell she's angry, like really angry, and she's talking, and I'm not sure who she's talking to, but she's talking. And and as I sat there, I didn't even get my headphones on because she started yelling at this guy who's sitting at one of the workstations. You know how they have like desks in the airport now, which is stupid, but that's what they do. She turns out she had gone to the restroom and expected this guy sitting there to guard her seat and guard her stuff. And so when she came back, the seat was taken, and she had lots of words to share with this guy for failing his task, like lots of four-letter words, and after several of those, he's, he just simply looked at her and said, ma'am, it's illegal to leave your bags unattended. Like, he was the best, he was so, like, polite about it, and I was like, yes, I've heard that recording several times. You are correct, sir. And it did not help her anger, because then she engaged with more words and questions as to what about God's law of kindness. That's what she began to yell at him in the midst of her four-letter words. Uh, I didn't, I thought about saying, what about God's law of not swearing? But I didn't think that would help either. And so it got worse and worse. The guy got up and left. Her attention went to the woman who had actually set her stuff down in her supposed chair. That woman had no clue. She had no idea what was going on. And as it got worse, my heart kind of started to break for her because as she worked through her swearing, her anger, more of her story started to leak out. You ever been with somebody who's really angry, but you're starting to understand why they're angry? She was from West Virginia. She was flying back to Clarksburg with us. She couldn't wait to get back to West Virginia where people were kind. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and she was in Chicago because she had just watched her brother die in hospice care. Honestly, it was, it was really kind of painful to watch. Her anger, her hurt, all of it was leaking, exploding into the atmosphere around here, Her. In the last part of Jesus' prayer, he teaches us this phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one or from evil. Now, I got lots of questions about this, and I'm just going to do a brain dump of all my questions. So hang on for a few minutes. We're going to answer a few of them. Jesus prays this final part of his prayer. He tells his disciples, this is how you close it out. Request that your Holy Father that you started talking to not lead you into temptation. So let's talk about that because I got a problem with that. Because James 1 verse 13 and 14 says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So James says God can't be tempted, nor does he tempt, but Jesus says ask God not to lead you into temptation, and James and Jesus were brothers. Could they not have worked this out before they wrote their books? Now, let me alleviate a little of this before we get to the other question, because that's a big question. So the word for temptation in the Greek is this word periasmos, and it can also be translated as trial. Lead us not into the trials, into the testing. The New Revised Standard Version of the Scripture says, do not lead us into the time of trial. I still don't like that we're asking a good father to choose not to lead us to trial. That still is a little disorienting to me, but I like it better. So first question here, does God lead us to temptation or trial? But let's back up and talk about the idea of what God leading us might mean. See, the word for lead here is a Greek word that has a couple meanings. So when the scholars have tried to explain it, they've debated, is the prayer about God causing us to go towards temptation? Is he leading us like, come on, get up, like, let's go? Or is it permissive? Is it saying God is going to allow us to go into temptation? Now, the problem's there. If God causes us to go towards temptation, then he's a little bit sadistic. I'm just Satan, the things you think, right? That's, that's all I'm doing today. If God permits us, then he's kind of intruding on our free will. Now, one more line of questioning here, the second part of this prayer. Jesus says in the New International Version, which is typically what we preach from, lead us not into temptation, he says this, but deliver us from the evil one. So it sounds like Jesus is teaching them to pray for rescue from an evil being, a.k.a. Satan, Right? But the King James translation actually shifts this and says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So here it sounds less like Satan, more like a prayer against multiple levels of evil, like all the evil in the world. So which is it? Let me recap some of the questions with this difficult passage. Does God tempt us? Are we asking God who tempts us not to tempt us? Does this sound like circular reasoning, right? And is that different than what James said about God not being able to tempt us? And if God tempts us, how much does he tempt us? Like, is he tempting us to cheat on tests? Some of you are like, I felt that. I don't know if it was God. (laughs) Or is he tempting us to cheat on our spouse? And what's the purpose? Is there a divine carrot hanging out somewhere in front of us that we're trying to chase down? And what kind of God would that be? And by the way, let's keep going. What about evil? pray for deliverance from evil, how should we understand evil? Are we praying for deliverance against Satan, the evil one, or is it just evil in general? And what does that teach us about evil in the world? Should we assume all the evils under Satan's control, and God sometimes protects and sometimes doesn't? Or are there some levels of evil to blame on Satan, some on other reasons? And which is God willing to protect us from? Are you thoroughly confused yet? This is why I'm exhausted after Sunday mornings because you get this for 40 minutes, I get it for like seven days, okay? What I want you to realize here is this is a really difficult passage. One scholar said this about biblical translation, the work of moving the language from Greek or Hebrew into the English or whatever other language. They said all translation is interpretation, right? What they mean is that there are difficult words, there are phrases, elements to consider when translating, and sometimes it comes down to interpretation issues. So think about this. I'll give you an example. Say you're not a a, a primary English speaker, and you show up today, and somebody says to you, we ran to the store because we love to eat garbage on the day of the big game. Now, if you're an English speaker, you know exactly what we're talking about. We traveled to the store to buy food that is not very nutritious because we enjoy that on the day of the Super Bowl, which is a national competition between football teams, American football teams, right? If you're not an English speaker, then we translate that, and there's some work of interpretation. We ran to the store. So you got, you like ran? How far was it? Did you use your feet? Right? We, to eat garbage, right? So they sell trash at your store (laughs) on the day of the big game. Well, was it soccer, rugby? Which game was it? What big game? Is there a big, so we understand that all translation is interpretation. So let me give you some context as we start to unpack this passage in the year 4 BC, when, when Jesus, right about the time Jesus was born, the Roman Empire was taking over the world. And, and much of the military force of Rome was carried out. The way they maintained their power was by setting up puppet kings. So if I traveled to your little community and I conquered your people as a Roman Empire, then I would take someone who said, hey, I'm the best kiss up in the land. Will you make me king? Absolutely. You are now the king of this nation. That was what happened with Herod the Great. And that king was tasked with keeping power and keeping allegiance to Rome. And in the spring of 4 BC, Herod the Great, who was the friend of the Romans and the puppet king of the Jews, had died. And because of this vacuum of power, then several revolts broke out immediately all over the Jewish homeland, including this region of Israel known as Galilee, which, by the way, happened to hold a small little village named Nazareth, which is a place where a guy named Jesus grew up. And in this region... Much like the warlords of Afghanistan or the tribal fights for power in, in colonial Africa, this was not a centrally located rebellion. There were groups of rebellious fighters trying to rise up against Rome. and oftentimes they were led these groups were led by their supposed saviors whom they might have called messiahs. And they would fight and they would be stifled. One of these rebellions was led by a rebel named Judas who broke into the palace, stole the weapons to arm his men. And because Rome had no military presence in Israel, they sent troops from the edge of the Syrian region down into Israel, down into Galilee with fire and sword. And they wanted to teach Israel a lesson. And they said, if we teach them the lesson now, we will do it so forcefully that we will not need to return for a few generations. So consider the force with which Rome came. They came with about 18,000 troops. With about 1,500 infantrymen, and these troops stifled Jerusalem by crucifying 2,000 people who they considered rebellious. But this Roman Empire also sent part of their army toward this city called Sepphoris in Galilee, close about four to five miles from Nazareth. And they burned the city, and they enslaved its people. From, from Nazareth, it wasn't far to the city where they had seen Rome come, and they had seen, as one historian said, the scenes of fire and blood where grain was decimated, produce and livestock were eradicated, farms, houses, trees were burned. Those who couldn't hide if they were male would be killed. If they were female, they would be raped and enslaved as children if they were still alive. So here's what I want you to grab onto. When Jesus prays, deliver us from evil, from the evil one, he had a context. See, he was born in the midst of rebellion and suffering. As a child, there was a death sentence placed on his head. He had seen other messiahs killed. He understood political tension, anger, hopelessness. He grew up in a village that could have suffered at the very time he was born. In fact, he understood evil maybe better growing up in that context than anyone of the day. So when Jesus prays this prayer, there's reality to what he's saying. It wasn't just some ethereal spiritual prayer that he was saying. Just pray this when you feel bad about life. See, Jesus and his people remembered the year that the Romans came. They wondered in the face of pillaging and rape, slavery and decimation, where was God? Where did God go? They had questions about suffering and evil, just like we. Let me show you another piece of this that's helpful, and then we'll draw some conclusions. A couple verses here. Matthew 4, a couple chapters before Jesus teaches us this prayer, we find Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 1. Here's what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, this word here, tempted or trial in some translations, the Greek can mean both of those things, is directly related to the same word Jesus teaches his disciples, He's led to temptation, and he tells his disciples later, pray that you are led out of temptation. So if you look at this, and we don't have time to do justice today, you'll see several things happen in Jesus' temptation by Satan. One, Jesus is tempted. He's tested by Satan. But here's what he's tempted to do. If you read this story, he's tempted to test God. He's tested to put God to the test. He's asked by Satan to put God on trial. This is a biblical theme that matters and maybe answers one of the first questions that I asked. I can't remember them all, but I think it does. Throughout scripture, God does seem to test his people. Or allow them to be tested. I don't ever see God tempting people to commit sin or practice evil. But we do see tests. Now, with that said, however, it is unacceptable for humans to ever test God. And my question would be, why? If God can test us, why can't we test him? And let me tell you, because we are ever-changing, fickle, broken human beings. And he is a good, perfect, covenantal God who never changes. If we were to test God, it would be based on our own desires. When God tests us, it's based on the good of the universe that he's created. Uncomfortable, yes, but good. Another piece of the third temptation of Jesus here with Satan is Satan says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Now, in Luke, Satan actually says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world that have been given over to me, and I give them to anyone I please. Now, that bothers me like crazy, right? I want Jesus to be like, no, you don't own the kingdoms of the world. I created the kingdoms of the world. But check this out. Jesus doesn't argue that point. He accepts that the evil one, Satan, has rule over the kingdoms of the world, the evil of the world. But notice what Satan does not say. He does not say, I own all of creation. He doesn't say, I own the world or the earth as God created it. He says, I own the kingdoms of the world and their glory and their power. And I would argue this is absolutely critical as we move to answer some of our questions. When Satan talks to Jesus about his dominion, he's talking about, watch this, the violent world of civilization as humans have turned it into. The kingdoms of men, not the kingdom of God. He's not speaking about the good creation. So as a first point, when we see the power and the glory achieved through violent injustice today, anytime you see power, glory achieved through violent injustice, it is easy for us to call out, and it is everywhere. It is done in the honor and the worship of Satan and the rejection of God's kingdom because God's kingdom is not a place of injustice. It's not the way it exists. One more passage I want to show you before we, we, we answer some questions. We began with the rebellions at Jesus' birth, but now I want to take you near the end of his life. He's facing the night that he will actually be arrested, tortured, executed on a cross, and he takes his disciples where? To this garden of Gethsemane. For what reason? To pray. He says, I need to get away and pray. Perhaps they would pray this very prayer that he taught them. Facing his own death, he might lead them. Lead us not into temptation or trial, but deliver us from evil. And in this moment, watch, Jesus goes off by himself, it says, to pray. And when he comes back, he finds his disciples sleeping. As he's been praying, right, he prays, God, would you take this cup from me? Then echoing his own Lord's prayer, not my will, but your will be done. He's praying the words he taught his disciples. That's good leadership. And he comes back and finds them sleeping. Mark 14, he says this to Simon Peter. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that not fall, watch, into temptation. That's the same word, periasmos. I don't want you to fall into that. Now, guess what? When Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, pray so you won't fall. And they do fall, right? Simon Peter falls asleep. When he wakes up, they get together, and Jesus is arrested. And what does Simon Peter do? He whips out the sword. He cuts a guy's ear off. And Jesus has put the sword away, and he heals the guy's ear. Injustice will not be cured with Injustice. Evil will not be cured with evil. So where in the world does this all lead us? I do have some conclusions, believe it or not. This has been like a firecracker sermon. Here's an idea. Here's a thought. I would say three things today. One, we need to acknowledge trials and evil. That sounds really common sense, Right? But we need to acknowledge trials and evil. See, for Jesus, the themes of evil and trials or temptations were not separate. They were deeply entwined. Israel was tested or tempted through a historical narrative, right? If you trace the story of Israel, you see that their story built up for them, pressure and pain. The night would often get darker and darker. And when it was at its darkest, the hope and the light, they believed, would dawn on them. And by the way, that's the same life Jesus lived, Jesus was faced, as one theologian says, it said wherever he went, he was faced with opposition. Opposition that took the form of tormented souls yelling and raving under demonic and mental emotional anguish and tormented souls driven by spirits of criticism. Satanic opposition from his own followers, even Peter himself, whom Jesus at one time said, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. And in the very next passage says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus was faced with evil. As he faced his death, he said to his disciples, you've continued with me in my trials and temptations. See, friends, these trials and evils, these are a part of what it means to live a life as a believer in Jesus. They're part of the history and the present of the Jesus people, but here's the good news. They are not part of our future. Our future is filled with hope, hope born through fire, through trials. And evil. Can I just say this to you, friends? Any version of Christianity that promises you a life free of trials, free of temptations and evil is no Christianity at all. Whatever you see late night where they say, send us this and we'll bless you forever. You will be happy forever. That's not Christianity. That's not the story that we find here. It never has been. And any God that we set up as our own who simply becomes our helicopter parent, you know what I mean by this? Leaves us free of pain or suffering is no God. See, I don't want a God just, I don't want that God just as I don't want a general who simply thinks he knows about war because he read a book. I want a general, and we have a God who has been through the war, who has walked into hell even as he bled, suffered, and died, and he walked out triumphantly. This is why Paul says, and don't miss this passage, he says this so boldly in Colossians 1. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering. Paul was nuts. I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, he says, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. He says, I haven't even suffered near what Jesus did, but I'm filling myself up on this suffering for the sake of his body, for the sake of the church. Because when we suffer, we grow towards hope. He says, don't miss this. This is my audacious claim. The temptations, the trials, the afflictions caused by evil, they all exist for the building of the body because on the other side of the affliction is the glory. That's why Romans 8 says that the whole creation, Paul says all of the cosmos is groaning as in childbirth, longing for deliverance. See, we live in a world where temptations and trials are real, and they will remain real even as they cause us to long for the great day of deliverance and hope where the kingdom Jesus inaugurated and the kingdom we pray for in this prayer, where that kingdom will come to life fully. But we live in this world where evil is real and powerful, and friends, it's not simply out there away from us. You see, the kingdoms the devil owns and rules... And let me pause to just tell you, I don't know what your theology tells you, but Satan is real. Now, let me also say, he's not what you think he is. He's not the little animated red figure in Tom and Jerry trying to make you make bad decisions. That guy's cute. The Scripture says he wants to destroy us. He wants to devour us. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Did you ever see the movie Ghost in the Darkness? If you haven't, go watch it. These are man-eating lions. That's the way Satan is described. See, he wants to rip your soul from your heart and undermine every part of you, all of your insecurity, all of your anguish, all your fear, anger, shame, anxiety, the self-loathing, the addiction, the things you can't shake. That's the work of Satan. And I think it's okay for us as a church to claim that, to name that, and say that. But the kingdoms Satan rules are the kingdoms we give him as humans when we worship those things that are not God when we give authority to forces of destruction and violence, when we put our hope in the places that are hopeless. By the way, friends, the places that are hopeless today, the political realms, the financial realms, the foolish realms, Satan is not the opposite of God. That's what I don't like about Tom and Jerry. You've got Satan matched up against God or the angel, and they look like equals. They're not. God created Satan. Satan rebelled against God. Satan has no power that God does not allow him to carry out. There is evil in this world. We have to acknowledge it. We're confronted with it every single day. Now, here's my second point. We have to respond to the trials and evil. We can't just acknowledge the evil. Oh, yeah, it's there. Let's just, let's just back up, right? We have to respond to the trials and evil. Now, and we have to understand this because when we start to grasp the truer, bigger nature of Jesus' prayer here, we grasp something that transforms us. Maybe you were taught this prayer as a recitation to help you through life. So the only way you've known this prayer is on Sunday mornings, you say it with a whole group of people, or you pray it before you go to bed, or you pray it when you're panicked, or they do it in a movie when somebody's about to die. You ever notice that? So when you pray for God to not lead you to temptation and deliver you from evil, you're thinking primarily of these personal trivial things. I've got sins in my life I'm trying to deal with, and yeah, it applies there. But it's far removed from the larger story. See, this prayer begins with the approach to a good father asking him will you make your kingdom real will you bring your will you win the battle will you bring your kingdom to reality see this prayer lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil was spoken by a guy who grew up in the midst of rebellion who had a death sentence on his head and i believe it's a war cry against the powers of hell and the evil of satan and it's an invitation and a plea for protection as we enter the fray And when we see Jesus in Gethsemane facing his own world-changing death, praying the same prayer, to think this is only about your personal morality is a failure to understand what Jesus is praying. He was called, as one theologian says, to throw himself on the wheel of world history so that even though it crushed him, it might start to turn in the opposite direction. We're called to respond to the evils of the world and the trials of our life. We have to respond. Now, let me give you three incorrect responses that I see really common today, and I've got a picture to just demonstrate these really easily. The first is some of you, when it comes to evil and trials, you're ostriches. You just put your head in the sand. I don't want to talk about bad stuff. We just pretend evil doesn't exist. When when the house is on fire, let's sit down and get a glass of tea and shed some layers because we'll cool off. Parents, can I say to you, There's a battle for the heart of your children right now. There's a satanic oppression of addiction in our community that wants to take your teenagers out. And if you put your head in the sand, you're missing it. Husbands, wives, there is a war against your marriage. There's a war being fought for the heart of your marriage. Men, there, there is a calling that we need you to step into, and complacency is a strategy of hell. When you choose to check out, disengage, not care, then you're missing out. Women, we need you to lead us. If all we're looking for is the ostrich is burying our head and getting a good Disney existence where everything ends happy, then you're missing the point. But some of you aren't ostriches. Some of you are pigs. I'd say that. I love, right? How many times do I get that? So don't be an ostrich. Don't be a pig. Somebody tweet, tweet that out today. Pigs just wallow in the evil. Right? This is where we see evil everywhere. Anybody remember Flip Wilson? Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. Whatever it was, the devil made me do it. Right? Some of you are like, I don't know who Flip Wilson is. <laughs> YouTube. I've been in settings before where I'm praying with folks, and I'm, and, and I'm watching people talk to Jesus, and all of a sudden, in the middle of their prayer, they start talking to Satan. Satan, you have no place here. Satan. And they end up praying to Satan more than they're praying to Jesus. I don't understand it, but it's this, it's almost like like demon hunters, right? Like, and they're wallowing in the evil instead of understanding that we're victorious over it. And then there's this third group that I, I looked for a picture of a raptor. There are no photographs of raptors. I don't know if you know that or not. Um, <laughs> some of you get that later. So they're hawks, right? These are the people that attack evil. But but here's the thing. When the hawks attack evil, they don't understand that they themselves are often the cause of evil. It's the self-righteous. It's the religious Pharisees, the good people who say, yeah, there's evil, but it's far removed from me. So let's attack it. Let's go after it. By the way, this is the pervasive approach of every political ideology today that imagine themselves to be the guardians of the truest truth. And attacks like a hawk or a raptor, everyone and anyone who thinks differently. So if we're called to respond to the evil, how do we respond to it? I want to say to you, like Jesus. Right? We're called to respond like Jesus. We're called to subvert it. See, Jesus, watch what he does with evil. He absorbs it, confronts it, transforms it, and sends it back out into the world as the beautiful kingdom of God. He embraces his own trials, and he does so with the power of God's kingdom, and the result is his time in the wilderness, his time in Gethsemane, and his death on the cross. He becomes, I love this, he becomes the kingdom sponge. He sucks all the evil in and says, I'm going to diminish this and empower this and make it beautiful and bring it back out into the world. And you say, there's no way. I can't resist the trials. I can't withstand the evil. It feels like too much. I've tried, and it just keeps coming. The attacks, the destruction, the doubts, the questions. There's no way I could do this like Jesus. And you know what? You just preach truth to yourself because you can't. You can't do it. Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this because he knows they can't do it. He knows they can't do it. Only God can. And when we pray this and make this part of our breathing, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we are signing on for the struggle and the battle and trusting that God alone can protect us in the midst. And that brings me to the final point today. In Christ, we must overcome evil and the trials. See, if we work to answer all the questions we've been asking today from a philosophical approach, here's where you're going to land. If you read the great philosophers, Darwin, Keats, all, all the philosophers, secular philosophers, when they deal with evil, struggle, suffering, what they say, what they create, is it basically boils down to what they call the myth of progress. And the myth of progress is our world's getting better. Everything's moving. Look at it. It's evolving. Everything's going to be okay. But the question is, is it really You see, this myth leaves us in a posture to ignore the evil and believe that the world is okay. And that works fine until evil slaps you in the face, until suffering slaps you in the face. You have the ability to ignore it until it takes up residence in your living room, until it starts sleeping with you, until tragedy hits, until your quiet bubbles are pierced with the audible explosion of the pervasive evil of our world. And then what? We're surprised. But without the answer Jesus offers, we react in immature and dangerous ways. We may claim our own innocence. Why should the innocent suffer in the reality? None of us are innocent. Or we attack and we blame whoever or whatever seems closest, often God himself. And so in Christ, we're invited not just to survive evil but to overcome it. See, in the wilderness, Jesus doesn't run from saying, oh, my gosh, I came here to fast and there's a devil i got to get out of here. He doesn't do that. He doesn't hide. He confronts every temptation with the word of God, every temptation we've ever faced in the fullness of his humanity, and he wins. On the cross, he embraces every bit of torture, every bit of pain, and in the midst of it all, he asks God, would you forgive these people who are killing me? Would you forgive them? He absorbs the evil and the crucifixion, and he turns it into victory. And then there's Gethsemane, the garden where his arrest is made real and the calm of the night's filled with evil. This is the place where we are invited into his triumph. It's in this moment where the sword of evil, the sword of attack, you notice this, right? The sword of attack comes at Jesus to arrest him. And as with any attack in our world today, just think for a minute about Facebook. Because I know all of you have been attacked on Facebook, social media, news media. Somebody's attacking you at work. As with any attack, we automatically feel the need to attack back. Or you might posture that as calling it defend ourselves. When we're attacked with the sword of offense, we reach for our own sword to defend. We fight because we have been attacked. That's Peter's response in the garden, right? Jesus is attacked, surrounded with evil, so we should fight back. If the world's attacking our sense of morality, if the other side, whoever the other side is for you, Whatever position they may hold, if they're attacking, we should surely fight back. So Peter grabs his sword, and he causes more hurt. He returns the evil of offense with the pain of defense. He's the hurt person hurting others. The lady in the airport, by the way, was enduring hell and wreaking hell on others at the same moment. Surely this is our best defense. But this prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That prayer is the prayer that Jesus asked Peter to pray. He said, would you pray that in the garden, that you would not fall into temptation? And perhaps this prayer is the way we overcome, only in Christ. I'm going to invite the band to come, and as they do, I want to tell you one more part of the Chernobyl story. About a month after the explosion at Chernobyl, the workers began to construct something called the sarcophagus. Now, the sarcophagus was designed to contain the nuclear fallout, the radioactive material that was so toxic, so poisonous, so deadly to so many in the area. So coal miners came in, and they dug underneath the reactor, deep, deep, deep underneath the reactor, and created a concrete slab to keep the nuclear fuel burning down into the ground. They actually believed at this point that if they did not put something under it to absorb it, that it could burn all the way through the core of the earth because nuclear material cannot be stopped a whole other sermon in there about the fire of God. I didn't preach that one today, but it's coming. After that slab was put in underneath more than 400,000 cubic meters of concrete, 7,300 tons of metal were used to build the sarcophagus. The building would enclose 740,000 cubic meters. The massive structure was designed to enclose and contain every ounce of evil that the reactor was releasing. And you know what's mind-blowing? The sarcophagus was failing. It wouldn't last. The evil of the material is too strong. The sarcophagus had to be covered, which is what you see here, by a new structure in 2017. And eventually this one's going to fail as well. I don't know how you feel or how you perceive this, but the evil around us in the world can seem unstoppable, I think. But we have this story, friends, of a God who stepped out of heaven and became flesh. He became fully human, and he engaged the temptation and the evil, and he triumphed over it. Paul says in Romans 5, he says, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly when we were powerless he said i will take it i'll absorb it and then he says in verse 15 for if the many died by the trespass of the one man if sin came into the world through adam and affected all of us how much more did god's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man jesus christ overflow to the many and in our story it's gonna be weird you can tweet this one too christ became our sarcophagus that will never fail he'll never fail. He absorbed every ounce of evil and temptation and trial that was cast upon him, and he absorbed every evil that we will face, and he invites us to the sanctuary of his body, his broken, bloody, suffering body, but also his glorious resurrection body. It is in Christ that we find triumph over evil, and in Matthew's gospel, this is where the Lord's prayer ends. We know the version, thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever, amen. But notice this was not in Matthew's version. Most think the church added that later on as part of their liturgy, part of their practice of worship. For in Matthew, this prayer for being led away from temptation and delivered from evil is a call to the body of Christ, the church, to join the fray, to trust that we are safe, rescued, inoculated, and immune to the evil of this world. Friends, we don't have today to be the cynical people, the angry people, the anxious people, the fearful people. We can be the people who actually see reality and in Christ triumph over the evil and turn this world towards his glory. Let's pray together.